Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. So many great words we have sung this morning, amen? Oh, my word. So, so, so thankful uh, for Brian. I'm thankful for our team. I, I'm thankful <clears throat> just for the, the rich, diverse expressions of worship and praise that we have within our community. And to hear you sing, you know, I get to hear you sing when I stand up here and, and I get to play and stuff. But to hear you sing from, from down uh, seated with you and standing with you is just such a privilege uh, because it encourages my heart in the Lord to hear you sing words like my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Uh, we are in a series on the book of Revelation. And so I invite you uh, to turn in your copy of scripture to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to cover two chapters today in our study together. Um, <clears throat> If you don't have a Bible, um, I, I really encourage you to grab a Bible uh, before you leave today. There are some Bibles available at the back. If you don't have one, if you have a friend that doesn't have one, please take one. Those are there for use. They're not there just to gather dust. They're there to be used uh, because um, one of the ways God speaks to us is through his word. And I, I just, the, the more time I spend in this text, the more questions I have, but the more amazed I am that God would pen a, 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 a book like this that we might understand him and understand his heart and know how better to walk and to live in our world. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. And just as a, as a quick recap, Revelation chapter 1, um, John, John writes, uh, or, or the Lord comes to John and he says, I want you to write the things which are and the things which are yet to come. We studied the, the things which are, which for John, that is the letters to the churches to whom he specifically writes in Revelation chapters two and three. And we come to Revelation chapters four and five and we get this incredible vision of the throne room of God. And I think one of the reasons God gives him such an incredible vision is because Revelation six through 19 give an incredible picture of the final judgments of God. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff mixed in with that as well. But, but the overarching narrative of Revelation 6 through 19, and the Lord comes back to the earth in the second coming in the second half of Revelation 19. I think we have to keep this big picture in frame. These are things that are yet to come. And yet God says, blessed are the ones who read this book. Because even when we're considering the things to come, God has things for us to learn in the here and now. And so um, I want to go ahead and read together uh, two chapters of Revelation today. Um, and these chapters are going to strike you, if you've never read them, perhaps a little like, what is going on there? Um, Revelation is one of those books that sometimes you're like, okay, I'm tracking with that. And then sometimes it almost reads like a sci-fi novel or reads like a graphic novel. And you're going, what, what story am I reading here? And in fact, I think if you were to actually just stick with the actual text here and you were to create a film or to create a book, you'd have a lot of great material to, to, to make a great, crazy sci-fi type thing. 
Um, but we're introduced to the angel in the little scroll today, and we're introduced to two witnesses. So here's kind of the format of our teaching. We're going to read it all together, and then I'm going to give us a brief synopsis of, of where we're at in the grand picture of Revelation, and then we're going to give a, just a brief synopsis of the actual, like, here's what happened in kind of layman's terms, and then we're going to look at a couple of different things from each chapter. So we'll look at chapter 10 first, then we'll look at chapter 11 first first. And then next week, Pastor Tom gets to crack open chapter 12 for us, which I'm super excited about. Um, So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to. Uh, Revelation chapter 10 is where we will be. Then I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire and he had in his hand a little scroll which was open he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on earth and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he had cried out the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices and when the seven peals of thunder had spoken I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying seal up these things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the earth lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it and there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. As he proclaimed good news to his slaves, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. When I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. Revelation chapter 11. Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me saying, get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it and leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. And if anyone wishes to harm them, fire, must, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the authority to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They also have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. And when they have finished their witness, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb." 
and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. We're going to finish our reading there for today. Father, would you, um, by the working of your spirit, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to set upon your truth that, may, that we may walk more faithfully in a faithless world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, kind of a couple of crazy stories here. Th these are things I believe that are yet future for our world. These things haven't occurred yet. But I want to kind of give you a, a chronology here. Ephraim, if you would go ahead and start my slides, that would be great. Oh, hey, it's not on the back, but it's on the front. That works. I'll look back here. Um, so we are looking a little bit at a chronology. And here's kind of the, the overarching frame that I've already kind of given to you. We have three series of judgments in Revelation. We have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl or the vile judgments. We also have then the second coming. The second coming is Revelation 19, the second half. But the big events of chapters 6 through 19 are punctuated by these three things. And then we get some, uh, we'll call them intermissions or we'll call them brief pauses, or we'll call them zoom into a little bit different area or perspective of the story. Here's what those kind of look like. After the seven seal judgments, we were introduced to 144,000 and a great multitude. We studied that in chapter seven. Okay, we studied that in chapter seven. Um, we come to, let's see if I can go to the next one. Next one, there we go. We come to the trumpet judgments, which we studied last week. And we, we have the angel and the little scroll, which we're going to look at today. We have two witnesses. And then we're introduced to a woman, a child, and a dragon. Two beasts, a lamb, and the 144,000. Again, the three angels' message. And then we get seven plagues and seven angels. So within the pouring out of the judgment of God with these trumpets, you have before the seventh trumpet, uh, or before we go into the next series of judgments, you have all these things. And it's almost like God, maybe the way you can think about it is, is this, is John is writing something and he's zooming into a particular part of the story. And he's saying, let's look at this and let's look at this and let's look at this. And this is all part of the vision that God is giving him as he sits on the, isle, uh, the island of Patmos in Asia Minor. So he's seeing things that are yet in the future, but he's describing them as though they are basically in the present because it's what he's experiencing. We come to the bowl judgments, and here's where things just turn up the next notch. And after the bowl judgments, you have the story of the women and the beast. You have Babylon falling, and then you have worship that is being engaged in heaven. And you get all these kind of pictures before you then come to the second coming in chapter 19. 
I give this to you to kind of give you an overlay of where things are at. You have this great overarching narrative of the judgments, but then you have certain stories that kind of pepper in where we're introduced to different characters at different times for different reasons to give us a picture of what's going on in the grand story of God. We come to the end of that and um, we come to this chapter that we read today. Um, the first story that we read, we could summarize as follows. John the Apostle, the servant of Yahweh, encounters a vision of an angel coming from heaven. He hears things uttered that sound like peals of thunder, but then he's told to seal them up, to not disclose them. He's then told that there will be no more delay in progressing forward toward the end of the age when the mystery of God is completed. John is called to prophesy or to reveal things about many nations, people, tongues, and kings. But he seems to struggle because while the words of prophecy are sweet to the kingdom-minded followers of Jesus, they're bitter towards the people living for the world's kingdoms. In fact, he's invited, he's told, he's commanded to take a scroll, to eat it, and it tastes like honey. It's sweet. But when it hits his stomach, it's bitter. Here's the thing for John, being a prophet in other words, telling the truth of God to a world that doesn't want to hear it can be really hard. That's my summary of chapter 10 for you. All right, that's my summary of chapter 10. Let's look at a couple of the details here. And I want to frame it this way. Um, John is told at the end of this, he says, um, God says to him, I think it's through the angel. He says, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again. Whenever we, we, there's two, at least two other stories in scripture where something is eaten. Ezekiel's one of these, Jeremiah's one of these. They're given a scroll, they eat it, it's sweet, but it's bitter. Because one of the ministries that Jeremiah and Ezekiel, like John, have is that they have to share something that's really hard. They have to share something that's not popular. In fact, it's very common in the ancient, um, in, the, in, the, in the text here, that when God sends prophets, they're typically there to correct. They're typically there to bring along and say, you're not walking in the way of God. Let me point you back to the way of God. And many times the prophets are laughed at, they're scoffed at, they're spurned, they're shunned. The work of a prophet is really hard. Many times the prophets go to God's own people, Israel. Um, Jeremiah has a ministry to those who are in dispersion, who are in exile in Babylon. Um, Ezekiel has a different kind of ministry. Jonah is a prophet who goes, who's called to go to a foreign nation. Uh, he doesn't want to go. It, like, it's hard to be a prophet. But as they go, they're supposed to proclaim what God has told them. And I just want to say, it's very similar today. We live in a time and a place where hearing the truth of God is not always friendly to the culture in which we live. And yet, when we've experienced life, how can we not share it? How can we not step into the work God has given for us to do, to proclaim his truth, to proclaim his grace, to proclaim his mercy, and yes, even to warn people whom we love, people whom even God loves, that one day God will come and will set things right. John, 
uh, sees this angel. And it, it says a strong angel in chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, the word angel there can be translated angel or messenger. And he's coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow is upon his head. And you get this, you know, face like a sun, feet like pillars of fire. Some people think that this is a... a um, a, an appearance of the Messiah because of some of these descriptions. But, but I think it's best to just understand this. This is a messenger. This is an angel. The word ang- angelos appears six times in this chapter. Um, and this messenger is coming down from God to reveal truth from God to John about what he wants to be revealed. But, but notice what happens in verse four. John heals, hears this peals of thunder. And, and that could be a reference to the seven voices of the Lord in Psalm 29. Um, but, but he hears something up there. And what I find fascinating is he hears this and, and then he hears a voice in verse 4 that says, seal up these things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. And immediately I want to go, why did he write that you saw something or you heard something, but now don't write it. Because the inquisitive person may wants to go, well, what was it that he experienced and why didn't he write it? And the simple truth is, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It reminds me of uh, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. my favorite verse when I don't know what God is trying to say. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that God has clearly revealed for us, and yet there are things that God hasn't told us all about. Or there are things that he will reveal e- even in a, in a more clear sense over the course of time. We, we think back to the Hebrew Bible and all the prophecies of a Messiah coming. When Jesus came, the Jewish people largely were not expecting a Messiah who would come as one who is a servant. They expected one who would come as a king. And he will come one day as a king. But when Jesus comes the first time, there's a lot of people who knew the scriptures, who knew the Old Testament, who said, there's no way this could be a king, especially when he's on a cross, because the scriptures say, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And why would a Messiah be cursed? There's things in the salvation plan of God that we do not fully understand. But even as I say that, we have to be careful I love the way that um, someone I was, I was listening to this week puts it. His name is James Whitney. He said this. He said, our faith is not a mystery religion, but there is mystery in our faith. Our faith is not a mystery religion. In other words, we have clarity about the gospel. We have clarity about what God has revealed about who we are, who we are in his image, what he wants for us. We have so much clarity about our life, but there is mystery. There are some things we don't fully understand. So our faith is not a mystery religion. We're not dependent upon a guru to try to reveal stuff to us. God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself through his word. He's revealed himself through his son. He's revealed himself and continues to reveal himself through the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Our faith is not a mystery, but there is mystery in our faith. And each one of us, come to the same revealer of truth, God himself. We, we, we don't have to go to someone else to be a judge and arbiter of God's truth. We go to God himself. 
It is good to have theological discussion and study together. It actually helps keep us from error. God has appointed churches to have elders and to have pastors to, to, to help govern the clear teaching of his word. But at the end of the day, this is it. This is it. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for, for, for teaching and for rebuke and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is it. And the Holy Spirit helps us understand this. So our, our faith is not a mystery, but there is mystery in our faith. There is perfect clarity for all that we need for life and godliness here today. There are things that I do not understand about God, which is good because if I understood everything about God, you should be scared. And <laughs> right? You should be scared. If I ever say that, whoo, whoo, be scared and then come find me and gently rebuke me. Um, that does not mean that we don't have clarity though. That does not mean that we don't have clarity on the things that God has clearly revealed. I, I love that we, we, we sang this morning. And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. There are parts of our faith that, that we look forward to in a very tangible way, being in the presence of the Lord, that I cannot fully explain or describe. But I know this, I know the heart of God and I know the teaching of God and, and I know and believe because God's word says that Jesus has done it all. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, it meant that my sins were no more when I trust in him because he is the once and for all perfect and complete atoning sacrifice. He doesn't just cover my sin, he cleanses it. What an incredible, incredible truth. God, though, I, this word mystery is in here. Typically when the word mystery is used in the Bible, let's see if I have it here, yeah. Typically when the word mystery is used in the Bible, it refers to something about the salvation work of God. And as I said, in the Hebrew Bible, there was some like, all right, how's God going to do this? And things became clear as Jesus came. But I love this passage in Romans chapter 11. It's the same word mystery here. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here's the mystery he's specifically referring to. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Even as we stand here today, Paul has foretold a, a mystery of God that will take a hardened Jewish people, bring in Gentiles, and then God will come back and there will be a fullness of the regrafting of Israel back into God relationally, covenantally. And it's one of the things that we look forward to seeing in this time. John experiences these things. And, and, and after he's told, don't write these, 
we go through a bunch of stuff. This mystery of God is finished. He has proclaimed his good news to his slaves, the prophets. He hears something else. He hears another voice and an angel, um, or he hears again speaking, um, and, and the voice says, go to the scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands, who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so John is essentially recommissioned here in a sense. Um, he's told, I want you to go to the angel. I want you to take from him a scroll and I want you to eat it, right? As he eats it, it tastes sweet like honey. How many of you like honey? Oh, honey's delicious. If you ever take a piece of like the honeycomb and you've got that little bit of wax and you can just kind of suck on it for a little while, it's incredible and it's sweet. And you go, oh my goodness, this is so good. He says, it tastes like honey, but then it made my stomach bitter. So he gets two different experiences here. One is this word or this judgment from God that is given to him to, to steward. And it, it's sweet and then it's bitter. But then the voice says, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues. See, the truth of God is like honey to a disciple. It's like words of life to those who hear and who listen to it. But it's bitter. The same truth is bitterness toward those who desire to walk in their own path and not God's. When, when John is called to prophesy again, I think one of the things going on here is the reality is that it's hard to be a prophet. It's hard to share the truth of God to people who are walking in the other direction and don't desire to listen. It's hard to share again and again and again and again the message that brings life. But John is called to faithfully walk after God. He's called to be faithful to what God has given him. He's called to faithfully preach the word. John, why? Because the mission of Jesus is more important than John's comfort. The mission of Jesus, God's calling upon John, is more important than John's comfort in life. He's writing, he's writing this vision down from prison, exile, on a island called Patmos in the middle of the Aegean Sea, about you know, 30, 40 miles out from the mainland. It's a rocky place. It's not a comfortable place. It's not a place he probably wants to be, but it's here in a barrenness, in a wilderness that God says, I'm going to give you a message to write and I want you to share it because it's going to be not just, you know, information for the future, but it's going to be a testimony of myself to a people who are walking in a different way. When we read these judgments, they're true judgments. They're judgments that are going to come upon the earth. And yet in God's great mercy, it's even during this time that God will bring people to himself. See, see, the gospel is a mystery for those who do not seek it. It makes very little sense that a perfect sinless God would make himself a substitution offering for a sinful people. It makes little sense that it would even more be free to those who receive it. 
No cost to those who receive. It makes little sense that God would remain faithful to a people even when they continue in unfaithfulness like the Jewish people. Even when they continue, God remains faithful. It makes little sense that the way of Jesus' kingdom is not the path to, of power, position, or possessions, but it's a way of humility and dependence upon the Father. The gospel is an amazing thing. Because it doesn't come in to conquer, it comes in to give. But every gift must be received. And our job, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to faithfully proclaim that which Christ has done for us to a world that desperately needs to hear it, to neighbors that desperately need to hear it, to loved ones that desperately need to hear it. And there is nuance in how we do that. And I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who helps us know exactly how to do that in the right way, in the right time. And sometimes our ministry is even just a prayerful ministry towards people because we ultimately cannot change someone's heart. Here's the principle I want you to get from chapter 10. And there's probably more we could say, but here's the principle. God has commissioned and called us to faithfully share the truth of Jesus to our world. We are not responsible for the results but we are responsible for walking in relationship and in fellowship with God that we might be faithful to the things he has called us to today in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces. We're not responsible for the results, but God wants you and I today by the Holy Spirit to faithfully share his truth, especially within a world that seems, seems deaf to its message. If you ask people who study missions and who are involved in that, in that realm uh, globally, one of the things you'll find out is that one of the places where the gospel is bearing fruit with the most abundance is Iran. Just stop and think of what it costs for a believer in Jesus to share the good news in such a hostile country towards the gospel. Fruitfulness comes when we attach ourselves to Christ and we walk in his path because it's going to be God who does the work. Faithfulness is our commitment to go to God and say, all right, Lord, here's what's before me. What do you have for me today? After chapter 10, after chapter 10, we are introduced to this story of the two witnesses. And um, one scholar has said this is the most challenging um, chapter in the Bible to accurately understand. There are so many different perspectives and opinions about, about who the two witnesses are and how they interplay in this. And so uh, I'm going to summarize the way, I, the, the way I understand this to be. And I encourage you to continue to do your study of the text and allow God to lead you in, in some of these things. But here's how I would summarize the two witnesses, which is just a crazy story at face value. In chapter 11, the first 14 verses, we are introduced to two witnesses who are given authority by God to prophesy. In other words, to reveal the truth of God for 42 months and or 1,260 days. Their ministry is centered on the temple in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is controlled by Gentiles, yet there's a priestly ministry occurring. These two witnesses have powers to, number one, shut up the sky, and number two, turn water to blood. Fire comes from their mouths if anyone tries to harm them during their appointed time of ministry. After the 1,260 days, God allows a beast to come up from the abyss and to kill them. They are not only killed, but their bodies are left in the streets of Jerusalem, which is being controlled by an idolatrous and and Gentile group that that has um, overtones of anti-Semitism to it. Denied a proper burial, these deaths are celebrated. In other words, one scholar said, it's kind of like ding dong, the witnesses are dead going on here. And they're left on the street to decay while the people on earth celebrate by sending gifts to one another. What was the witnesses' crime? Sharing the truth of God, the prophetic testimony of God, tormenting people. Tormenting I use in quotes there because the words that are sweet to some are bitter to others and what they preach is offensive to a world that is godless. The witnesses crime tormenting people through the prophetic testimony of God's grace, mercy, salvation, and coming judgment. After three and a half days, God breathes life into them. They stand up to their feet. They're translated into heaven because God says, come on up here. And two results occur. The first is this, there's an earthquake and 7,000 people die. The second is this, the rest of the city gives glory to the God of heaven. What a crazy story. What what, what a crazy picture that's given here. Um, As I said, many have called Revelation 11 one of the hardest passages to understand. And it opens with a measuring read given to the Apostle John. This seems to mirror the prophet Zechariah's revelation from Yahweh in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll let you go and, and read that sometime later here. But here's the setting. We, we have a, a, a temple in the great city, Jerusalem. This is a temple that, that is not functioning currently. But what's interesting is there are, um, there are things within even Israel today where there's, there's a work of people like preparing things for the tabernacle. I came across a website in the last year uh, when I was studying something about one of the, um, one of the parts of the, of the, um, the, the tabernacle. And they actually have like a, a reconstructed gold menorah. Like, it's crazy to, to look at the picture that's been done and you go, whoa. And how that fits into the end, I don't know. But I think that there's something cooking up <laughs> where there's going to be a reestablishment of the temple because that's what Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 9. And so there's, there's a temple within the great city. And the city we're talking about here is Jerusalem. Welcome to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. This is, this is the closest place that a Jewish person can get to, um, to, to pray, as, as close as you could get to where the ancient tabernacle stood. And what we're introduced to here is that verse 2 seems to indicate that a sanctuary is set up, but the outer Gentile courts have been given to the Gentiles to trample underfoot. In the time of Jesus, here's a remodel um, of the temple that you can find in Israel. In the time of Jesus, here's what the temple looked like. You have the, the, the sanctuary there, the biggest, tallest building in the center. And then you have different courts. You have the court of the priests, which is labeled the court of Israel, the court of the women. There's a small balustrade. I don't know if you can see it right here. And in the time of Jesus, you could not pass that balustrade because there's actually archaeological evidence of some plaques that were found that basically say, um, if you're not Jewish and you pass this, your life is potentially going to be taken. Um, Gentiles were not allowed into the temple 
proper, but they were allowed into the court of the Gentiles. So it seems that the picture we have here is that there's an ongoing functioning ministry that's happening, um, which would indicate that Jewish people are involved with it, but that the outer courts here are given to the Gentiles, and they are going to trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, if we follow 42 months, we'll, we'll go to 1,260 days. They equate the same. The, the ancient month was basically 30 days. So you do the math, it comes out. When we come to this time, times, and, and half a time, that's it. Time, times, and half a time, we get this image or this number that comes back from Daniel's ministry where there's going to be a time of relative peace where a covenant is made with the Jewish people, I believe during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and a part of this first three and a half years, I think, is the resetting up of the temple, a re-engagement of the ministry here. But then there's going to be a time in which the Gentiles, when the anti-Messiah comes in and a covenant is broken, and literally all hell begins to break loose with all the judgments of God. Here we have the court of the Gentiles is being trampled underfoot. God appoints two witnesses. And, and there's a couple of different ideas about who these two witnesses are. I think what helps me the most is that um, reading the context really is what helps me the most. If this is a part of a Jewish work that God is doing, a reconstruction of the temple before he brings Israel as a nation to himself and they look on the one that they have pierced. If that is the case, there's a lot to be said in just these descriptions. When we think of, of their witness here, they're called to minister to God in that time and they're given two different powers. Verse 6 calls it this way. These have the authority to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophecy. That's the first one. And if you're a Jew and someone says, yeah, there was authority given to shut up the sky, and you know your Hebrew Bible, you're going, hang on a second, that sounds a whole lot like someone called Elijah. All right, Elijah back um, has this showdown with, with um, the king of Israel and the prophets of Baal. And he says, it's going to be by my word. There's going to be no dew, nor rain, no anything until I say it. And it goes for more than a couple years of drought in the land. It, it dried up everything in the land and water flowed after they had this amazing showdown on a place called Mount Carmel. And the whole point of the showdown was, who is God? is if Baal is God, he says, worship him. But if Yahweh is God, worship him. So Elijah, I think, is probably who's in view here because he's given the authority to shut up the sky. There's another description given here later in verse 6. They also have the authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. There's some dispute about who this may be. I think this is probably a guy by the name of Moses, though. Because if you're a Jew and you're hearing this description and you're experiencing this in the end, end days, you're going, hang on a second. I remember there was a prophet. His name was Moses. And one of the things God gave him to do was turn that water into blood and to call down plagues. 
I think that that's who these two people are. I think the Jewish people see these two, and this is part of God's amazing prophetic turning of the Jewish people's hearts to himself that I don't fully understand every in and out of, but I think that's who they are. Some people think it's not Moses because Moses died. Some people think it might be Enoch uh, because Enoch never died. Um, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up in, in in a chariot thing up into heaven um, but I think it's probably Elijah and I think it's probably Moses. That's my two cents and you can continue studying and engage with that. But notice what they do is they come out and if anyone tries to harm them during their appointed time of ministry, fire, it says, comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. In other words, they're impervious to any attack of any force on the earth for a time. For a time in which they proclaim, for a time in which they prophesy, for a time in which they minister on behalf of God to the world. It says in verse 7, when they have finished their witness, in other words, what God had appointed for them to do on the earth for that time, when that is done, it says a beast comes up from out of the abyss to make war with them, and it says he will overcome them and he will kill them. Next we get this in just crazy party that goes on. In fact, this is the only party recorded in scripture on earth during the tribulation. And notice what they're celebrating. They're celebrating that these two witnesses died. Their dead bodies, it says, will lie in the streets. In other words, they're denied the dignity of even a burial. That's how much they're hated by the world and by the world systems. They're lying in the streets of the great city. All right. That's, that's a, that's a, oblique reference to Jerusalem, but just to make sure we understood, the great city, i.e. Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. So when you think of Sodom and Egypt, you think of um, depraved living, and you think of Egypt, you you think of bondage. You, you, You think of being enslaved. And so here God is saying, Jerusalem as a whole is not walking with God they're, they're, they're walking in a way very different from God. They're in bondage, bondage to sin, bondage to the adversary. And they leave these bodies out. And just to make sure we understand that this really is Jerusalem, it says where also their Lord was crucified. So he doesn't want us to miss. This is Jerusalem, but the spiritual component of Israel, in, of Jerusalem specifically, is not very strong during this time where also the Lord was crucified. Verse nine, and those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations says, we'll look at their body for three and a half days. In other words, this is blasted out all over the place. There's people who walk by and they see it. There's probably people, think about our modern age, there's probably people who take an Instagram of it, who are posted to Facebook. Yep, day two and the bodies are still there. Day three, the bodies are still decomposing. There's there's various types of uh, media that are going out so that all the people in the world of every tribe and every nation, every tongue know those bodies are still dead. But notice... You know, and those who dwell on the earth, again, dwell on the earth, we looked at last week. Every time this is used in this latter portion of Revelation, it refers to people who live for the world systems, who've aligned themselves with the beast. All those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and they will celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They tormented because they shared 
prophetic testimony of God. It's, it's, um, it's a word that's used in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, to describe um, Jesus' interaction after casting out demons from some people. The demons say um, to Jesus, don't torment us. Actually, they say, uh, they ask Jesus if he has come to torment them before the time after Jesus drives them from the two men whom they have possessed. You know, they, they know, in other words, if you go back to Matthew 8, they know there's a time coming in which they will be tormented. But they say, it's not this time, right? <laughs> These people are being tormented during this time of prophecy. There's a celebration and I think maybe a darkness and just, just an increasing heaviness upon the earth. But notice what happens after three and a half days, the breath of God breathes life into them and says, come up here. He says, breathes life into them. Uh, imagine you've been on the news or the bodies have been on the news for three and a half days. You're expecting to wake up on that third day and you're going, yep, here we go. It's another day and they are still dead. And it's like, like, that, um, like that, uh, that phrase that comes from the Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead. You know how they go, they tramp around and they, they, they party and they shout because the witch is dead. That's going on on earth with regard to these two witnesses. Three and a half day the breath of God comes into them and life begins to change. You can imagine the various news coverage at that time, but there breathed life into them. And then God says, come up here. After they'd stood on their feet and great fell, fell upon those who were watching them. Come up here. They go up into heaven and their enemies watch them. And then it ends with two amazing things. Number one, a great earthquake, which leads to a tenth of the city falling. In other words, 7,000 people, it says, were killed in the earthquake. There's a good portion of destruction that takes place here. There's a good portion of judgment that takes place here. But there's also a good portion of grace that takes place here. People see this. The rest were terrified, right? They were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The word here for terrified— um, is also used in Luke 24, verse 5. And it describes the response that Jesus' disciples had after he had been raised. The, the result of this miraculous event is that a judgment occurs towards the 7,000 and the rest worship God. Here is the principle. Here's the principle. I skipped a couple slides. Here's the principle. The principle is this, in the, day, in the darkest of days, when evil seems to be prevailing, don't discount God. Don't discount God. In a moment in which it seems like the fever of idolatry and the fever of wickedness is ever increasing on the earth during this tribulation period, God is not done working in the hearts of people. That reminds me of just the incredible mercy of our God, the incredible grace that he gives to us. God continues to do a redemptive work during the great tribulation for those who are on the earth and especially for a Jewish people who will one day, Zechariah says, they will mourn for the one that they have pierced and they will welcome him. How do we apply this second story about two witnesses. I want to say just a couple of things. The first one is this. 
Um, you may be facing incredible pressure or hardship right now. It, it probably doesn't rival what's going to be experienced on the earth at this time. But you may be facing incredible challenge and difficulty. Stay faithful regardless of the cost. My days, your days, they're in the Father's hands and he is a good father. He knows exactly what we face. He knows exactly what we need. And his invitation to us is to walk with him. His invitation to us is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to let our hearts, to let our minds be focused on God. What would please you here and now? Lord, what would faithful walking look like for me today? And then to be obedient and to yield ourselves to the work God wants to do. Stay faithful regardless of the cost. In fact, you could put these two, um, two things together and you could say it's really important to be a faithful witness during an unfaithful time. And it's also really, really, really important when everything seems pressed around you. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. I love the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this. He says, you therefore, beloved. Stop. I just love that he says, beloved. That's who you are. That's who the people of God are. In his eyes, you're not just a servant. You're a beloved person, child of God. If, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You've become a part of God's family. You've been adopted as his son and daughter. And he calls you beloved. I love it that Peter does this too. Because John says beloved all the time in all of his letters. But Peter picks up on this too. You therefore beloved. You're loved not because of anything you've done. You're loved because of whose you are. And who you are in the Lord's image. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. And he's talking about this in a, in a context um, where there is a prophetic telling of the day of the Lord. The day of judgment is coming. He says, knowing this beforehand, that judgment is coming. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And you lose your own stability. Be careful that what you trust is text, is consistent with God's revelation, is consistent with God's word. Be careful, brothers, that, that you're not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Stay grounded, church. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Beloved, don't be carried away with error. Don't become unstable by the lies that seep into our life. Ground yourself in the truth of who God is and who you are in his image. And as a result, grow in the grace and knowledge. Grace is the divine enablement for living. It's, it's God meeting us in our utter weakness to show himself strong. Not because we've earned it but because God is a good God. Grow in the grace and the knowledge. Knowledge is not just knowing more facts. It's about being so connected to the Father that you know his heart. 
and it's being so dependent upon God that you go, God, I don't know how I'm going to love my enemy the way you call me to. God, I don't know how I'm going to forgive the person that you want me to forgive. God, I don't know how I'm going to speak truth in this context. It's the dependence of saying, God, I can't, but you can. God, will you do this work through me? That's what it means to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We sang a lyric earlier. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, each one of us are being taught by God. It may be, it may be that your journey looks a little bit different than someone else's, that your challenge looks a little bit different than someone else's. Go back to your father. Go back to your good shepherd who knows exactly what you need and who teaches you an eye to say, regardless of what we experience, God, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Our father and our king, Thank you for meeting us here today. Thank you for the grace which comes from Christ. God, we stand and we sit here today, not on any merit that we have done or accomplished something, but totally upon your grace. And Father, even now I pray for, for those hearing my voice. I pray for loved ones in my life and the lives of us today who, who have not experienced the grace of God who haven't come to saving knowledge of you. And God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in them, that they might know how much they're loved. And God, that you would reveal yourself to them in an incredible way that would lead them to give their life to the one who has given already his life for us. God, as we walk out from here, we walk out as called people. We walk out as redeemed people by the blood. We walk out, God, as, as your ambassadors, the, 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 the church. We are your ambassadors. We're people set on a mission to share you with the world. Holy Spirit, would you lead us that we may know how to do that with sensitivity, with intentionality, and with clarity this week. God, we need you in this task. We give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772-4377.